I heard about a, a little uh, incident in a classroom where a teacher asked the class, uh, who's the greatest human being alive in the world today? And the responses came thick and fast. Uh, one little boy said, I think it's Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger Woods, yeah, absolutely. Greatest human being. He's absolutely awesome at golf. Little girl said, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, because he gives billions away to help fund research projects and uh, vaccination projects against disease uh, all over the world. And the kids, one after the other, just came out with all these celebrities who they thought were the, the greatest human beings alive. And uh, little Johnny spoke up and uh, he said, Miss, I think Jesus is the best person. Uh, he was always ready to help everybody. He's from Merthyr, in case you didn't know. And the teacher said to him, that's very good, Johnny, it's a good answer, but don't forget I'm looking for, you know, people who are alive today. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Johnny came straight back at her and said, oh no, Mrs. Thompson, he is from Merthyr now, say, it's not, it's not true at all. He lives in my heart today. I don't know if it's a true story, Lou, but you know, it's, it, yeah. And it got me to thinking. Pastor Tim's been asking us again and again, who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? I don't know what answers you've arrived at and what you've concluded in your own mind and in your own thinking about that. I think the little boy in the classroom got the answer right in many ways, but I just want to follow this through this morning. So June's going to come, and we're just going to look at a few verses together in the brief time we've got left together. June's going to come, and she's going to read from Matthew Chapter 16. Thank you. Thank you. So it's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Peter's confession of Christ. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked, the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this, is, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Amen. Thanks ever so much, June. That's a, a passage I'm sure you've looked at many, many times and probably heard dozens of sermons about. But I just want to hone in on this whole thing of who is Jesus and who is he for you? Jesus had spent about two years 
teaching, training the disciples. A fair amount of time has already elapsed in the gospel account of his life. He's just had another run-in. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see that earlier on in Matthew's gospel, he's had another run-in with the religious leaders, the good Baptists of the day. They, as far as Jesus was concerned, they were getting it wrong. They were teaching the people stuff about God and about faith that was just plain and simple wrong. It was winding him up and it was binding the people up in all sorts of ritual and tradition and religiosity. And so Jesus warns his followers. You need to be very careful, he says in verse 6. Be on your guard against the east of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And at first the, the disciples didn't get what Jesus was talking about. Why is he blinking referring to them as east? But of course, you know, east, if you're a baker, you'll understand. East is a very potent thing. You only need a little bit of east, but it has a, a huge effect uh, on some dough. And uh, that's what Jesus is saying to them. You know, these guys, they, they teach little things here and there, but they're getting it so wrong, it's polluting everything. And it is corrupting the way people think about God and about faith and what it means to be a follower of God or a believer. What's always struck me about this little incident is the context in which it's taking place. Now, if you've got your Bible, look at it very carefully with me, because you'll see verse 13 tells us that Jesus has taken the disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. That's really important. The tide's been steadily shifting against Jesus. Many of the religious leaders have added up to here with him. They want rid of him. They want to get rid of him. They're plotting his death. And the disciples, I can imagine that they're probably tired. They're weary. Everywhere they go with Jesus, there's controversy. And, and there's probably a lot of tension in the air. And I think Jesus shows his leadership skills here. Sometimes you just need to get people away. Get them out of the situation. But blinking egg, where does he take them? He takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'm sure that they probably thought this was going to be a weekend retreat. They're going to have a chance to regroup, refocus, recalibrate. But he's taken them into an area, Caesarea Philippi, that is full of religious symbolism. I don't, I don't think that's an accident. I think Jesus knows exactly what he's doing at this instant. Because he wants to make a very clear point to the guys. And what's about to happen here in Caesarea Philippi is going to alter the course of human history. Because it's from this point on things dynamically change within the story that's unfolding about Jesus' life. Now, Caesarea Philippi, you can look in the back of your Bible, or I can just put it on the screen for you. It's an interesting place. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever been there. Anybody ever been to Caesarea Philippi? Yeah, one or two of you. So it's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's considered a pagan territory. It was the capital of that Roman province. You know, probably from your history in school, you know, the Romans, they worshipped blinking everything, you know. So in every crevice... There was an idol. You walked through this area. It's a beautiful place, a very picturesque spot, 1,100 feet above sea level, near the towering snow-capped Mount Hermon. You'd have to go to the Brecon Beacons to find anything as beautiful as this, so there we go. But the disciples suddenly found themselves face-to-face -face with all sorts of pagan gods. And on one side of the mountain, there was even a cave 
where there was a temple to Caesar. Uh, Caesar, see, big man, got to worship me. He was the kingpin in Rome, wasn't he? So there was a temple there for worship. And uh, uh, also a, a, a temple to the pagan god Pan. P-A-N. All right? And in the crevices and the rocks, there were statues and all kinds of idols. Historians tell us there were no fewer than 14 different temples to the pagan god Baal in this area. So it was an amazing place to be. It was a hotbed of false worship, false religion. And in that very area, people believed that the god Baal had literally gone into hell, gone into Hades through a secret cave, the very gateway to hell. Are you with me? Because look at your Bible for a minute. Look at verse 18. Notice what Jesus says. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome it. They are there. I can imagine Pete, uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they're all there with Jesus. And Jesus, I think, he was brilliant at it, wasn't he? He's probably pointing at this blinking cave and saying, see there? Gates of hell won't overcome what I'm going to do in my church. It is an amazing situation, an amazing context for Jesus to do this teaching. Disciples are surrounded by a multiplicity of religions and pagan worship. I picture them settling in, and then Jesus starts. He's brilliant. He asks them two questions to, to try and probe and prepare them for what's coming. It's like a bit of a pop quiz, really. I don't think they're expecting the, this kind of examination. The first question he asks them, all right, there's the rock bit. The first question he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? I think if you were a disciple sat with Jesus in this context, you're surrounded by a load of rubbish, a load of pagan worship stuff. You've been following Jesus around for about two years. Now, you'd be well aware that a lot of people were asking that question, actually, who was he? And there were lots of opinions about it. No doubt everybody had their own opinion. We don't know who piped up with the answer. We're not told that. But they didn't have to phone a friend, I don't think, or consult the studio audience. But there are four answers that bubble to the surface, aren't there? Four answers. The first one is, well, you're obviously John the Baptist then. You're John the Baptist. Others say, well, you're Elijah. Others, uh, you're Jeremiah. Or you're one of the prophets. So four options. Which one will you take? All right? So there are four options for who Jesus is. John the Baptist, John had been an incredible guy, held in high honor by a lot of people. Quite natural. A lot of people thought he'd come back to life. Certainly what Herod believed, isn't it? Do you remember Herod back in uh, Matthew 14? It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, oh, blinking heck. It's in the text. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Oh. You scared stuff. Could it be John the Baptist? Others said oh, he's, he was Elijah. Why did they say that? Well, hundreds, hundreds of years earlier, uh, Elijah, the prophet, had rocked up. Uh, he'd 
talked very boldly about the problem with people's hearts being far away from God, performed some amazing miracles, inspired people, and along comes Jesus, and he's doing pretty much the same thing. People would know their Old Testament and, and look at Jesus, and they think, Good me, this, this is Elijah. He's doing exactly what Elijah did. In the last book of the New Te uh, Old Testament, rather, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, it says there, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. What's fascinating, we just celebrated communion this morning, and you know that the context for the first communion was Passover. And in the Passover meal, there is a cup poured out for Elijah. And, and the door is kept open in case Elijah wants to come in. A bit like you turning up late this morning, Celia, that's what it is, you know? So the door is open, the door is open, it's okay. Because, are you Elijah? Maybe you're Elijah. That's the thing. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Jeremiah? Oh, maybe he was Jeremiah. Some were clearly saying he was. Jeremiah was a no-nonsense kind of prophet, known to speak up boldly. He had a soft side as well, didn't he? He mourned over the hardness of people's hearts. If you hung around Jesus, you'd have heard him at times be pretty harsh in some of the things he said to the religious leaders. And yet he also, if you hung around close enough to him, wept at his best mate's graveside. Wept over Jerusalem, the city that he loved. So, so maybe, maybe, well, you maybe are Jeremiah then. And, and then the, the catch-all answer, or, or maybe just one of the prophets. Others couldn't decide, and so they thought, well, he's just a prophet. Now, I want you to understand, none of these answers are bad. None of those answers are bad answers in and of themselves. They all fall short of who Jesus really is. No one's openly confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But here's the point. Isn't it still true today in 2019? Whenever you ask a bunch of people who Jesus is, they'll give you a range of answers. And the reality is, for many of us sat here, that will be true this morning. Some of you are still checking out this Christianity stuff. You're not sure. And you have ideas in your mind about who Jesus is. Let's just watch some ideas. This is a vox box taken on the streets. Listen to what people say about Jesus. Jesus, oh man. <laughs> Jesus was an Aramaic speaking Galilean. For me, that's really technical. I can't answer that, but you know me. I just cannot answer that, really. Uh, I'm, I'm still puzzled by, by, by that one. He's a prophet. He's um, one of the messengers of, messengers of God. I think Jesus is an ambassador for goodwill for mankind. Um, I think Jesus was uh, a guy that cared about everybody. I think Jesus was obviously a remarkable man. Some people believe he's black, some believe he's white. Perhaps he was some sort of a mage and he had like, uh, you know, he was practicing magic and stuff. He was coming to this place to, to share his light. He's the one that looks after my parents up there, yeah. I believe that he's my Lord, my King and my Savior, you know. He is the Son of Man. The story of Jesus. There's something about it that makes me like when I believe into it, you know what I'm saying? Like how the guy suffered, you know what I'm saying? It's something that's really strong. So that's a, a thing that's a, a part of the Alpha course. 
and uh, we will be running another Alpha course in the not-too-distant future. Maybe you want to come and be part of that to find out a little bit more about who Jesus is. But this is the key thing. You, you put a group of people, you take a microphone out onto the streets, and you just ask people, who is Jesus? You get a multitude of answers. And, and that's true with any group. They can't all be right, though, can they? They can't all be right. The disciples knew what people were saying about Jesus. They could summarize it and say, well, look, some are saying you're John the Baptist, some are saying you're Elijah, some are saying you're Jeremiah, some are saying you're just, just a, a prophet. But Jesus hones in on it. He wants to know, okay, that's what other people are saying, boys. Who do you say I am? And that's the thing I want to ask you this morning. This isn't about what the person next to you thinks. This isn't about the person that you respect, maybe uh, your, your parents or something. It's not even about what I think. I'm asking you, who is Jesus for you? Truth be told, see, our culture is just as confused about Jesus as people were back in the first century. It's little wonder that views of Jesus contribute today to a wide range of spectrum of beliefs about him. You think about it, it's no wonder, is it, today, there is widespread skepticism about Jesus, about church, about Christianity. People are really quite skeptical. Polls show that people distrust nearly all authority today and they're just basically open to anything. It is amazing. You know, you get people talking about Jesus being a good man, you know, but the Da Vinci Code, you know, written by Dan Brown, reveals to us that obviously he was married and uh, he didn't, he wasn't as good as people said. And, and, and they're open to all sorts of things. Brilliant book, by the way, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Yeah, brilliant novel, brilliant work of fiction. But people are open to that kind of interpretation about Jesus' life, and suddenly, that characterization that, that comes alive through Tom Hanks has a kind of comment to make about the reality of who Jesus is. So people don't know what to believe about Jesus. Is he a magician? Is he some kind of wonder worker, just a good moral teacher? There is, as a result, enormous spiritual confusion out there. People are honestly scratching their heads. If you doubt authority, you'll be open to believing just about anything about Jesus. But I tell you this, there is still a deep spiritual hunger in society. I think some of you are here this morning because of that. And I think there will be people listening to this online who will have come to this because this question is something they're asking, and they have a longing inside them to know more about this Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us each of us is created to know God. There's a God-shaped hole in every single one of us, because God has set eternity in our hearts. So I ask you again, who is Jesus? To you. Who is Jesus to you? Well, that's dealing with the first question to the disciples, isn't it? The second question is, is well, much more personal, and, and your answer probably says a, a more about you than you realize. To paraphrase, A.W. Tozer writes, what comes into your minds when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. So look at chapter 16, verse 15. Here's the question, what about you? Who do you say I am? 
Now, this is very intense interrogation. This is the stuff of James Bond being sat and tied to a chair. Do you remember that? In some of these films, they get hold of the goodie, don't they? And the baddie is there, and he's about to interrogate. I think sometimes you approach the Bible, and you kind of read it with a kind of, but what about you? Who do you say I am? This isn't what Jesus is doing here. In the Greek, this is, this is literally, you! Who do you? Come on, I want to know! Who you think I am? It doesn't come over reading it in the text, but in the original language, it really does. Jesus really wants to know, who do you think I am? Jesus is easy to like, but he's not easy to love. Love has to do with allegiance and devotion. Many admire Jesus, but few actually adore him, because adoration has to carries with it the idea that we've got to submit to him and we've got to worship him. The passage doesn't really tell us this, but, but I think, you know, when Jesus asked this question, I think there was a stunned silence. I think it was like, oh. Remember when you were in school and the, the teacher asked a question and you didn't want to be the one who gave the answer. So you'd avert your eyes. Did you do that? Not to catch the teachers. I bet a lot of them were like, And then there he is, our favorite friend, foot in mouth, Peter. Peter pipes up. The interesting thing about this is, Peter speaks up, maybe because everybody else was frightened and he was a bit, oh, come on, let's say something. The interesting thing is he took one heck of a risk. Because if you understand anything about Judaism, and Jewish worship in this context, in Jesus' time, you'd understand that if anybody called another person God, that was blasphemy. And blasphemy was punishable by death. So what on earth is going on here? Because here is Peter standing up and saying something very profound. And the fact that they didn't all turn on him compounds the problem because it suggests they were like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, that's right, that's right, you are. Because Peter turns around and he says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. In the midst of Caesarei Philippi, surrounded by pagan gods, Peter's saying, you're not a mythical figure. <laughs> you're not a pan you're not, a, you're not a deity like Caesar. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Again, the Greek is even stronger. The, the Greek puts it like this. If you look at it, he's using the def, definite article four times. He's like underlining it. He, he's coming back at Jesus because Jesus has given him a rough time with that interrogation. You know, who do you think I am? And Peter's right back at him. You can imagine him, can't you, if you understand anything about Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Again, the danger is you approach the text in, in English and, and you just think, uh, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Indeed you are. Thank you very much. Hugh Grant, available on Wednesday. <laughs> it's not like that. 
Peter's back at Jesus, really enforcing who he is. He's giving Jesus the official title, a, a title, the Christ, the Messiah. That title is used over 520 times in the New Testament. This is really, really important. Peter had the courage to confess Jesus in a pagan setting and say, you're the man. You are the man. You're the main man, the real deal. He was willing to give a view that was contrary to the prevailing climate of the culture in which they were. And his answer became the bedrock for the launch of an unstoppable community called the church, against which the gates of hell will not and have not still overcome. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? It blows me away. You know, when you and I say Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, when you and I say Jesus is the Christ, when you and I say Jesus is Lord, we participate in something absolutely amazing that happened there in Caesarea Philippi. We don't use creeds, do we? We're good nonconformists. We're going to say a creed together. Come on. Let's say this together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven. And is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. Whoa! <laughs> Christianity is a confessional faith. You can't come to Christianity and just pick and mix the bits that you like and have a little bit of conspiracy theory here and a little bit from Sunday school that you remember there and sprinkle something you heard from one of the guys down the pub mixed together with a commitment not to be too exclusive and I don't want to be too involved. It doesn't work like that. Who do you say he is? That's a question facing every single one of us here this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Because not all the answers can be right. Either he is who he said he is, or what? Peter confessed who Jesus really was. Now, either that's true, or terrifyingly, Jesus is a liar. Let's just call it out here. That's an option, isn't it? Jesus made up all of this stuff. The Bible's a huge conspiracy put together over hundreds of years and the stuff that was happened is all manipulated, stuff that was said hundreds of years before they, well, no, people contrived it all and it all happened. It's all a lie. Or maybe Jesus was just loopy. Was he? Was he a lunatic? I mean, there are people, I've, I've been to psychiatric hospitals and met people who genuinely think they are Jesus or genuinely think they are God. 
Now, that people who say that, they're not applauded and put on a pedestal. They, they're locked away. And they're given medication and, and treatments and therapies. If Jesus was deluded, then it robs any sense of authority from anything he ever said. Or is he Lord? What if Jesus was exactly who he said he was? What long before cupronol was ever invented, he was doing what it said on the tin? There are many, myself included, who honestly believe he is Lord. He is Saviour. And there are many who want to accept Jesus as a good teacher, but without giving him control. I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writing in Mere Christianity. If you've never read this book, it's a great book. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great model teacher, but I don't accept him and his claims to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with anything patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 